This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 29. This is Writing Excuses Field Research. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And field research is going to take more than 15 minutes to do. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Margaret. I'm Howard. And we're talking about field research, the fun, fun part of our job where we get to go places um, and write it off. <laughs> it, it's, it is actually my favorite part of the job. <laughs> I, I remember talking to Jessica DeGeorge, who we've had on the podcast before, uh, who said, basically tweeted and said, I'm going to Europe and I can't tell you where because it's, it's all about my next book. Mm. And... Mm. And we, she was going to, you know, to look at castles and to look at historical stuff. And uh, and that is not the field research that I get to do. But uh, but I remember looking at it thinking, oh, that's that's actually a thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is great. You um, get to embed with a space mercenary fleet, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess my first question for us is, uh, when you're, we're talking specifically about field research, you're going to go someplace and do a thing or interview someone for a primary source how do you approach it? What is your methodology? Um, how do you take the notes? Uh, how do you decide where you're going to go? That sort of thing. So the I've done this uh, both as a, a writer and then also coming at it from, from puppet theater. And a lot of what you're looking at is, uh, is the stuff that you can't get out of the books. And most of this is going to be tiny details. So what I do first is I do a ton of research before I go so that I'm not asking the stupid one-on-one questions because that's a waste of everybody's time. The other thing that I do is I, in the process of doing that research, I usually identify an expert that I can reach out to. For instance, we were working on a play about Mary Anning, uh, who is the first widely recognized paleontologist, um, or a fossilist, excuse me, and uh, was born in 1799. So found uh, Dr. Hugh Torrens, wrote to him, said, we're doing this, I would love to, uh, we're gonna be coming to London to do research, I would love to to connect with you. Um, this is the honorarium that I can offer, and um, and it's not a big honorarium. It was like one hundred and fifty dollars, and for that one hundred and fifty dollars, he went with us to Lyme Regis. He was delighted to talk about this thing that was his passion. He introduced us to the paleontologists that he knew. He introduced us to the fossilists that he knew. He told us which fossil. Uh, fossilists were worth talking to, which fossil sites to go and look at, mm -hmm. what details were relevant. So we went and did those things. And having an expert to give you kind of a targeted in mm -hmm. about the stuff that you don't know about uh, was incredibly useful. And that, from that, we were able to bring back a lot of uh, visceral sensory details. Similarly, when we did the NASA thing, like I've gone to uh, the NASA museums a lot, but the difference between doing that and t being taken on a tour by an astronaut. Right, climbing through the replica of the <laughs> ISS. Yeah, it's, it is, it's a totally different thing. So you can go without an expert, but, mm -hmm. but for me, if you can find someone who is an expert or, or knows the area, you're going you're gonna to get a lot more out of it. Among other things, they're going to help you shift your lens mm -hmm. uh, so that you're seeing things the way that they see them. Circling back real quick on the honorarium, 
uh, it's worth noting that what you are paying for with $150 or $200 is not their time. You are buying their belief that you are serious about this. And, and it's, it, it's a small sum, but by offering it, uh, experts, experts often know to look for that. Oh, oh, there's an honorarium. Oh, you really you want to learn things from me? Okay, cool. I'm happy to do this. And depending on where you are in your career and what you're doing and who the expert is that you're approaching, the definition of small sum can become flexible. Very much. Yeah. So. If you're going to a local university because you would like information from someone who is a professor there or something like that, you know, take them out buy their coffee. That can be a perfectly appropriate honorarium for something like that, especially if you're in the early stages of your career and you're doing something that's basically on spec for you. Yeah. When I was getting information about uh, about meteor strikes, I thought I only had one question. And so took the person out for coffee, and then it turned out that I had more than one question. <laughs> the, there's a framework that I use for a lot of things, uh, knowledge-related, which is this this grid that says— uh, there are the things that we know that we know. There are the things that we know we don't know, the known unknowns. There are the things that we don't know that we know. You know, we have information, but we don't know how to categorize it. And then there's the unknown unknowns. I don't know. I don't even know how to ask the question that will get me the information that I need. And acknowledging upfront to yourself that there are unknown unknowns. You know, Mary, you said you don't want to ask the bonehead questions. You don't want to ask the stupid questions. Um, sometimes you have to acknowledge that uh, I'm, I'm going to ask some stupid questions because I just don't know how this works. But you own that up front. And then when you get thrown a curveball, you know, you, you wanted to ask one question about meteor strikes, and now suddenly you have 100, uh, you're not surprised by that happening. Mm -hmm. you, you accept, oh, Oh my goodness, the unknown unknowns space was larger than I wanted it to be. And now I have a known unknowns space and a long list of questions, and I am prepared to forge ahead into that. Yeah, and when I say I don't want to ask the bonehead questions, like again, working on calculating stars, there was no way I was going to learn the amount of orbital mm -hmm. mechanics that I needed to know for these books. Um, but I knew the area of information. Like, I knew this is this kind of thing, these are the effects I'm coming for. Whereas what happens to me a lot as a puppeteer is that I'll get people who will email me and say, can you tell me how to make a puppet? And I'm like, <laughs> okay. So there's five different types, five different major branches of puppetry. Within each branch, there are subtypes. What is your budget? How, what is, like, that's, that's, that's a question I cannot answer. I mean, there are books and books and books it's about a, that. It's yeah. the same measure of comp complexity as, can you teach me to build a bicycle? Mm -hmm. Or the, I feel like the equivalent in my area of the business, like, so how did you get started in the business? Or how can I break into television? It's like, there are a lot of blogs and a lot of books and a lot of information on that topic out there. Yeah. You know, it's, if someone approaches me with that question, I'm sort of like, uh, Google is your friend. If you have, if someone has done their homework and they have a more specific question, mm -hmm. that's when it's like, oh yeah, I can help you out with that. Yeah. Like I, I spent hours answering the, how you build a wing because they had watched a video and they came to me with a specific question. And mm -hmm. then we did some follow-up stuff 
totally happy to do that. This is um, 100% uh, my experience as well, writing on books. Like I just recently did, uh, did a, um, a fighter jet book. And I thought I had done my 101. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and yeah. then I went to the fighter pilots. And it turns out I was full of questions I didn't know that I didn't know um, mm-hmm. in Howard's realm, Howard's realm. But at least approaching it, once my eyes were opened, I was able to kind of get it closer, send it to the fighter pilots, have them say, no, you still got it wrong, but you're closer. Here's this and this and this, um, and kind of just work toward getting it right. You just named the unknown, unknown space Howard's Realm. Yeah, Howard's <laughs> Realm. <laughs> Thank, yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, when, I sat, when I sat down to draw the uh, uh, Munchkin Starfinder deck, um, I, I'm going to take this into a visual space for a moment. Um I needed lots of, I needed ways to do shorthand for a space pistol, shorthand Mm -hmm. for a helmet, shorthand for a Velcro pocket, uh, where with just a very few lines I could do a thing. And so I found myself Googling a lot, cartoon image noun, and then I would look at clip art. I would look at things so that I could get silhouettes of them. My favorite example of that was in the Starfinder book. There's this giant space creature that we just kind of acknowledge as a space whale. And I wanted an iconic whale that everyone would look at and just see whale. And I ended up with the silhouette of the whale that eats Pinocchio and Geppetto. And I, you know, I, I used that as the silhouette. And it looks incredibly simple when you look at it, but there was two and a half hours of research that went into that card because there were so many options for things which, when I simplified them, started looking less like a whale and more like a shark. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right, uh, let's stop for our book of the week, which is actually not a book. It is Howard. It's not a Howard either. It's a podcast, <laughs> um, PBS Space Time. Um, uh, we'll, post the, we'll post the link in the liner notes. Uh, the original host was uh, Gabe Perez Giz. He never actually says his last name, Gabe. Uh, and the current host, Matthew O'Dowd, these are astrophysicists who for about 15 minutes talk about uh, talk about astrophysics and and they go into the math it is hardcore stuff um, but the very first episode the introductory episode is Gabe uh, Gabe talking about let's look at the Super Mario games and determine what the gravity is on the planet <laughs> of Super Mario uh, and what's funny the answer is, it's a lot heavier than Earth because he comes down so quickly, oh. mm. which means Mario's legs are like rocket engines. <laughs> um, but uh, there's another thing that I'll put in the liner notes is my playlist of chronological episodes. They've been doing this, I think, since 2013 weekly. And uh, at the end of each episode, there's an astrophysics problem 
for you to look at and try to answer. And if you get to the problem, I didn't do any of the problems. I, I don't do math, I draw pictures. But I would listen to the problem very carefully and ask myself, what realm does the solution lie in? Am I gonna have to do calculus? Am I gonna have to do astronomy? And then at the end of the next episode, they give you the answers to the questions from the previous. And it's super educational. Huh. Awesome. Super yeah, educational. Yeah. So we're talking technically about field research. Uh, we've kind of strayed a little bit. I knew that we would uh, with this topic. Let's talk about going places. Um, I find that nothing can replace just walking down a street with the mindset of, I'm going to have to describe this someday. What are the little details that I'm going to notice? We've spoken many times on the podcast about how small details can convince a reader of a larger um, reality. If you get the little details right, they can they will actually assume the large details. And so for me, even if it's, I'm going to put this specific cafe in my book, and it's a cafe down the street from me. It doesn't mean I'm having to go to Paris, but just saying, I'm going to put this building in. What do I notice that's real about this building has been super helpful for me. Yeah, I usually try to do some free writing in whatever place that I go. Um, the, I give this exercise to my students. It's one of the first exercises, formal writing exercises I was taught, which is that you go someplace and you write for half an hour and you don't let your fingers stop moving. And and you you try to capture all of those those sensory details, um, and, and you're basically banking them for narration later. The, the thing that I would say also while we're talking about this is that, you know, not everyone can afford to go to NASA or go to Europe. And so you can also look for analog field research. So, you know, it's like I can't go perhaps to, to Europe, but I can find a narrow street. I can find a narrow street and feel what that's like to walk down. I can't go to that cemetery, but I can go to this other cemetery and I can notice these details about it. I can't go into the NBL pool, but I can go into a pool. Yeah, I think sort of what you're talking about is getting those sensory details. Because as much as I love my camera when I'm going out and I'm going to a place or I'm documenting something for research that I'm doing, it's sort of like when you're going on a vacation and you're snapping so many pictures, you sort of forget to look at things outside the lens. And you know, what your camera captures is different than what your eyes capture. And so making sure, even if you, as you are photo documenting details, if that's you know helpful for you, that sort of you know taking a step back, breathing literally and figuratively in the place where you are. One of my uh, one of my favorite research moments wasn't really research. Going to Phoenix Comic Con, and a bunch of us, you know, stepped out of the airport, uh, and boy, it was hot. We were in the shade, okay, and we all commented, "Oh, this is wow! That this is hot." And then we stepped into the sunlight, <laughs> and uh, and David David Willis, fellow cartoonist said in a very deadpan voice, we've made a horrible mistake. <laughs> and everybody laughs. Um, and But that sensory experience, you look at the picture of the line between shade and sunlight, and it looks like that line anywhere that shade and sunlight might fall, but that was not what we experienced. Mm. Along those lines, uh, a reminder, don't just write down what things look like. Yeah. Um, I have to reemphasize this time and time again to my students. Uh, 
you will naturally focus on sight, at least most of us will. Um, try to get the sounds, try to get the smells, um, try to get how it feels to step out of an air-conditioned area into the heat. Uh, get those, those details as well. Yeah. I had uh, an apartment fire in the first apartment I was living in after college. The fire was actually in the apartment immediately underneath ours. Oof. So our apartment, not so much. There was some fire that had come up through the walls, but it was mostly smoke. And then the fire department coming in and wetting everything down. The most profound memories that I carried forward from cleaning out the apartment after that was the smell of smoky mildew. Ugh. Because it is summer in Boston, it is humid, there is no air circulation because all the windows got busted out and are covered in plywood. And, you know, whenever I I was writing something else, I described a fire and it's like the smell of smoke and mildew hung over the place in the following week. And it's, it's one really of those things where, yeah, I never would have thought about it until I was there, you know, trying to get stuff out of out of that apartment. So smells are like, hardwired to your memories. On the two, 2017 uh, Writing Effuses uh, retreat, um, I got to tour a World War II-era Russian submarine. Um, and one of the things that I noticed most was not how cramped the large spaces were, but was when we peered into the cabins and I realized these, one, you know, I'm not a tall person, but these people must not have been very tall either, um, or they were curled up. Uh, there's just not much space. And a physical description of what you see can convey the size of things, but there is an emotion related to, to cramped. There's an emotion related to open space. There is an emotion related to all of my things smell like burnt cheese. Um, and, and that, as writers, is one of the things that is, is the most critical for us to try to convey. You, know, you don't want to tell your reader how to feel. You want to tell your reader what someone else is feeling so that they can come along for that experience. We are out of time. Um, hopefully this has been helpful to you guys. Howard is going to give you some homework to kind of yes. push you along. Um, go someplace close to you, where, but where you've never been. Uh, it can, you know, a side street, uh, a, a store, a restaurant, uh, whatever. Bring your, bring your phone, bring your camera, um, and, and take a few pictures. Then go back, look at the pictures, and look for things in the pictures that your eyes didn't notice and sit down and describe what is in this photograph uh, as if you are writing that as a setting for, you know, for a story. You know, as if a character is noticing these things. Teach your eyes how to look at the camera and see the things that the camera saw that your eyes didn't see the first time around. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. 
Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.